It's the week of June 14th, 2020. We are in one of the most significant moments in the history of the United States. There's upheaval and pain and a cry for justice in the streets of this country. There are protests and riots happening. And let me just say at the very outset, we have to use such caution and good judgment when it comes to where and how we get our news. I want to encourage you to get outside of your echo chamber. If you get all of your news from the same source, uh, then you understand you're living in an echo chamber. You are getting a steady stream of confirmation bias because you're looking for news that confirms your already tightly held interpretations of what's happening in the world around us. This has been a hard stretch these last three months. The coronavirus uh, brought not only our economy, but the global economy to a grinding halt. Countless people have lost their jobs, they've lost businesses, they've lost their life savings, they've lost their well-planned retirement. Uh, people, even in our community, are wondering where their next meal is coming from. And of course, people have lost their lives. Over 113,000 deaths in the United States, 400,000 around the world. People are dealing with that loss. They're trying to figure out how to handle their grief. And often without the support of their community because of social distancing and, or even being able to have funerals in the beginning of closure that that brings. And add into that already tattered and vulnerable mental and emotional state a couple stories of unarmed black men being killed by white men, including white police officers, and the conditions are exactly right for social unrest. I've been wrestling with whether to address this or not, because like you have asked the question, you know, is this even our issue? I mean, we live in a state that is 94% white, and in a community that is 97% white. We're in a church that is basically 100% white. So do we need to engage this topic? Is this even our issue? If we decide to address it, are we just jumping on a bandwagon? Are we trying too hard to be, you know, culturally relevant? I believe God's called me to speak the truth and that I don't get the option of skipping around truth. So today, I'm pressing pause on my series on the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm, I'm going to do my best to begin what I hope becomes an ongoing conversation about racial reconciliation. And more specifically, what God has to say about this topic in his word and what Jesus taught and modeled for us in his time here on earth. So after it became clear to me that I needed to speak to this, then the question became how? I mean, how do we approach this? How as a white man leading a white church in a white community in an overwhelmingly white state, how do I address this? Well, first of all, I would be much more comfortable speaking to this topic in a live setting, like if we were all together in the same room, uh, I could talk to you face to face, but this thing's on the internet and on video, and sometimes on video, nuance is lost, and it's easy to be misunderstood, and, but now it's out there. But here's the thing, I just refuse to be a slave to fear, so here we go. Today I want to encourage you to set aside, even for these few minutes, to set aside wherever you might land when it comes to what's going on in our country right now. To set aside opinions that 
are driven by what you're seeing on the news and what you see on the internet and what you feel and think about what you're seeing right now. And for a few minutes, I want to go to the scripture, and I hope that in going to God's word, that all of us can gain a little fresh perspective. This is possibly the single most unusual Sunday teaching that I've ever prepared and presented. And we don't talk about this a lot around here because uh, it isn't a part of our daily experience. So this message is really a message to our church, to my friends. Can I just say it this way? To other white church people. Many people have said over these last days, these last couple weeks of protests and riots, many people have said that the system is broken in this nation, that the problem in America is systemic racism, uh, racism that is embedded in the very structure of how our society functions. And I just want to remind you today that this nation is not eternal. Its systems are not perfect. They may arguably be the best in the world. They may may be the best ideas anyone can come up with or anyone has come up with yet, but they are not eternal and they are not perfect. We can sing God Bless America all we want. We can print things like in God we trust, on our money. We can take our oaths on the Bible and we can even call ourselves a Christian nation, but none of that makes us God's favorite people. And if you've been around some churches, you're like, well, that's right, because Israel is God's favorite people. Israel is God's chosen people, God's favorite nation, which means if we're friends with Israel, then we're like God's favorite nation's favorite nation. Can I just go ahead and burst your bubble for a second? God doesn't have a favorite nation. God doesn't have a favorite people. Jesus did away with that system. He fulfilled all of that. His death on the cross was for everybody. His blood was shed for people of every nation, every race, in his church. Everybody is included. And I believe that Jesus is still at work that his Holy Spirit continues to work so that nations and people groups within nations could love and serve and care for one another, where we can love one another as Jesus loved us. So what I, I guess I want to warn you that what I have prepared to say when I believe God is saying maybe to his church, to followers of Jesus in America in 2020, may be uncomfortable to hear. It may make you uneasy. You may wonder where is he going with all of this. First of all, I would much rather have conviction and change than comfort and complacency. So I've made a decision that I will side with conviction and compassion. This is what I'm committed to do because I want to follow Jesus wherever he leads me into whatever dark corners of my soul that he takes me into the screaming uncomfortable truth of his uh, light of his truth. So today, I want us to go to a well. It's a lonely well because we will find that Jesus will be there by himself for a moment. And in that solitude, I would ask that each of us would search our hearts. The more I learn about the nature of God, the more convinced I am that our Heavenly Father is brokenhearted and hurting and he weeps at the upheaval in our country 
And yet, like every circumstance, I believe his desire is that it would lead to further growth, more development, and more Christ-likeness in the people of this country. This, this morning is my message to white church people. When I say white church people, I'm talking about people like me. We're white. In our lifetime, we've always been the majority ethnicity. And we've been around church a long time. Maybe you, you know, we grew up in church. Maybe we've been Christians so long that we can't remember our life before we were Christians. Of course, now we call ourselves Jesus followers because that seems less offensive somehow. Or maybe, maybe, hopefully, it's more descriptive. But for my audience today, uh, you know who you are. There's a well in ancient Israel in a place called Samaria, and it's there that Jesus goes, and this story's been preserved for us in the New Testament because he welcomes us to go with him. And this is a little unusual for me, but I'd like to read 26 verses to give us some context. This is in the Gospel of John, chapter 4. I'm going to start with verse 1. So the news reached the Jewish religious leaders known as the Pharisees, that Jesus was drawing greater crowds of followers coming to be baptized than John. Although Jesus didn't baptize, but had his disciples baptize the people. Jesus heard what was being said and abruptly left Judea and returned to the province of Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaritan territory. Jesus arrived at the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph long ago. Wearied by his long journey, he sat on the edge of Jacob's well. He sent his disciples into the village to buy food, for it was already afternoon. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink of water. Surprised, shocked, floored, she said, why would a Jewish man ask a Samaritan woman for a drink of water? Jesus replied, If you only knew who I am and the gift that God wants to give you, you'd ask me for a drink and I would give to you living water. The woman replied, but sir, you don't even have a bucket and this well is very deep. So where do you find this living water? Do you really think that you are greater than our ancestor Jacob who dug this well and drank from it himself along with his children and livestock? Because Jacob was a big deal. You know, it's like, do you think you're a bigger deal than Jacob? I mean, God changed his name to Israel and then named the nation after him. So who do you think you are? And Jesus answered, If you drink from Jacob's well, you'll be thirsty again and again. But if anyone drinks the living water I give them, they'll never thirst again and will be forever satisfied. For when you drink the water I give you, it becomes a gushing fountain of the Holy Spirit, springing up and flooding you with endless life. The woman replied, Let me drink that water, so I'll never be thirsty again. Won't have to come back here to draw water. And Jesus said, Go get your husband and bring him back here. Oh, but I'm not married, the woman answered. That's true, Jesus said, for you've been married five times and now you're living with a man who is not your husband. You have told the truth. The woman probably paused, you know, her eyes probably got really big and she says, you must be a prophet. So tell me this, why do our fathers worship God here on this nearby mountain, but your people teach that Jerusalem is the place where we must worship, which is right. Jesus responded, Believe me, dear woman, the time has come when you won't worship the Father on a mountain, nor in Jerusalem, but in your heart. And your people don't really know the one they worship. We Jews worship out of our experience, for it's from the Jews that salvation is made available. From here on, worshiping the Father will not be a matter of the right place, but with the right heart. For God is a spirit, 
and he longs to have sincere worshipers who worship and adore him in the realm of the spirit and in truth. And the woman said, this is also confusing, but I do know that the anointed one is coming, the true Messiah, and when he comes, he'll tell us everything we need to know. And Jesus said to her, you don't have to wait any longer. The anointed one is here speaking with you. I am the one you're looking for. Let's set up the story a little bit, a little context to understand the reality of the tension. You could argue this is one of the most tense scenes that we see Jesus in. It's steeped in the traditions of men, in the erroneous teachings of generations of parents. If you do just even a brief history uh, of study, you know, on the dynamics between the Jewish people and the Samaritan people, it is toxic to say the least. See, the Samaritans were Jewish, but only half Jewish. It's been recorded that the Jews actually taught their children that Samaritans were less than human. They were not true Jews. They were less than human. And the bigotry and the hate and the toxicity between the Jews and the Samaritans was tangible. Of course, when you look at the landscape, you understand that it was the Jewish people who had the upper hand. What I mean by that is the, the systems of their culture like the way commerce was done, the way food was shared and distributed, or even when it came to worship at the temple, it was the Jews that were welcomed into these spaces. And when it came to the Jewish temple and the Jewish ways, the Samaritans had no part whatsoever until Jesus. Jesus intentionally went to Samaria. The significance of that cannot be overstated. In the Jewish landscape, that the promised prophesied Messiah, hundreds of prophecies about the deliverer, the conqueror, the champion, the hero of Israel, the hero to the Jewish people. Among these ancient Jews, there was literally zero concept of the Messiah caring for and including anyone outside of his own people. And yet Jesus goes to Samaria. So let's go to the well. I'd like to ask specifically that every white church person like me, take these few minutes with me and sit at this well and let's see what we can learn. John the Gospel writer says that something was happening in Judea. Oftentimes we jump to the story of Jesus at the well, but we miss why he left where he was to go there. And I think there's something in this for many of us. So it says in verse 1, soon the news reached the Jewish religious uh, leaders known as the Pharisees, so the elite you know, model Jewish leaders, Soon the news reached the Jewish religious leaders known as the Pharisees that Jesus was drawing greater crowds of followers coming to be baptized than John. In other words, somehow they were keeping score. And the intention of these religious leaders was to make John the Baptist and Jesus to make them rivals, to breed division in the ranks, and of course to unravel the messianic claims of Jesus. And it says, in light of this, abruptly Jesus left that environment. Jesus heard what was being said and abruptly left that environment because Jesus will not participate in the strivings of man streeped, uh, steeped in envy and jealousy and comparison in an effort to make themselves more important than others. This, of course, was the entire construct of the Jewish temple. It was an exclusive place. It was an elite place. It was a place where people enjoyed the feeling of being better than their fellow man because of their culture and their background and their tradition. So if we look at the, just the opening context for why Jesus went to a lonely well in Samaria, he left abruptly. Why? Why did he leave that area so quickly? Because it was an environment built on comparison and envy and division and pride and ego. 
Who's the biggest? Who's the most important? Who has the biggest following? Who's the most well-known? Who's the most well-liked? Who has the biggest uh, audience? Who's drawing the biggest crowds? Who has the highest approval numbers? Who's leading in the polls? Does it sound familiar? White church people, why don't we abruptly leave these environments of comparison? Why don't we abruptly leave those conversations? Why do we tolerate jokes that make people and people groups look small? Why have we tolerated, even in our churches, subtleties and generalizations and stereotypes? Why do we laugh at things God cries over? Maybe it's because we get caught up in comparisons, in striving, in winning, in comparing. Because it's difficult to set our own self-interest aside and find a desire to understand other people. That's hard. But I have to wonder if the reason we've become so comfortable in an environment that's mostly about us and about comparison and about rushing to judgment and at worst about stereotypes and generalizations and even racism is because comparison is easy. We love our comfort and leaving is hard. All right, next scene. The woman from Samaria shows up with her water jug. She's simply come to draw water. And John says Jesus sat on the well. And then he sent his 12 disciples into the village to find food. So for a moment now, picture this. Jesus is alone at this well. What could this say to Jewish leaders of his time? And what could this say to the white church in America today? Jesus sits on Jacob's well. Is that significant? I think it is. And I've never seen this before. Do you remember who Jacob is? Jacob is the guy who wasn't supposed to get the double portion. He was the younger brother. You find this story all the way back in Genesis, in chapters 25, 26, 27. He had an older brother named Esau. Remember, uh, Esau was a hunter, and he was hairy, and Jacob didn't have a lot of hair on his body. Genesis says he preferred to stay at home in his tent. So I don't know if he was a gamer. I don't know what the deal was. I just think it's weird that we know these details. So without getting into the details... Jacob tricks his father, who's blind in his old age, and his father gives him the blessing that was supposed to go to Esau. How did Jacob get this blessing? How did Jacob get the double portion? How did Jacob get his wealth that opened so many opportunities for him? Through manipulation, through deceit, because he was consumed with power. He wanted power. The word Jacob actually needs, means uh, uh, supplanter. It literally speaks of a man groping for power. And where is Jesus again in this scene in John 4? He's there sitting on the well that was produced by the manipulation and deceit of Jacob as if to say for all who are willing to listen, this way of leadership, this way of counting people as if they are your own, using numbers to make yourself look better or more important than someone else, Jesus left that environment to sit in another environment, and the environment was filled with a people group that the Pharisees would never be caught dead interacting with. And Jesus sat on the well because he's declaring that he's come to rule, he has the authority, he has the power, he's in a posture of authority, he's in a posture of power. Listen. Today, in June 2020, we have a choice about how we live out the kingdom values of Jesus. Now, depending on your church background, 
depending on possibly the influence of your politics on your theology, listen, we may need to break with our view of God because maybe, maybe we've missed it. Maybe we've missed our Heavenly Father. Maybe we aren't seeing him as he is at all. Maybe we've missed Jesus. Maybe we aren't seeing the world around us with kingdom of God values at all. Why is this so uncomfortable? Why are you wondering right now if I'm going to say something that will mess with your view of American society, with your view of race relations, with what you think is the real issue? Why are we so unwilling to leave our comfortable environment and why will we not sit at this well for as long as it takes? I think the easy answer to that is because this well may cost us something. It may cost us what we think we've earned and built through our striving, through our competing, through our comparing. We may have to acknowledge that maybe we've been a little too convinced that our way of seeing the world is the right way to see the world. We may have to acknowledge that the party line on one side or the other doesn't actually reflect God's value system as Jesus taught it and modeled for us. We may have to acknowledge that although you know, our experience in small town Maine has very little in common with the experience of our fellow Americans in other parts of our country, that even though we don't think we've contributed to the problem, it's not our problem, it's not our fight, this doesn't touch our lives. If we sit at this well with Jesus long enough, maybe we'll be led to acknowledge that maybe we've trivialized issues of race and justice. Maybe we've been guilty of repeating talking points. Listen, maybe we'll discover in the darkest corners of our hearts some prejudices that we'd rather just keep in the shadows. So we make a decision. We can come to the well and sit with Jesus and let him shine the light of his truth into the darkest corners of our hearts or we can continue to demand order because that's what we tend to do. We cry for order. We cry for law and order. Why? Because we want to be comfortable. We want to be as comfortable as possible. We want to be as safe as possible, if that's even a thing. We want to keep what we have. We're content with the status quo. And after all, we're a country of laws, right? That's what makes us a republic, the rule of law. With all due respect to our American system of government and our history and all that, if you are a follower of Jesus, your allegiance is not to a man-made system of laws and documents and bodies of government, as great as they might be and as worthy of celebration and respect as it might be. Our allegiance must be to Jesus and his kingdom. By definition, you can't be allegiant to two kingdoms when they stand in opposition to each other. And when the temporary kingdom of the United States of America stands in opposition to the kingdom of God and King Jesus, I choose Jesus. My allegiance to my country and its ideals must be secondary to my allegiance to the kingdom of God. And if that's true, 
then I won't be uncomfortable or intimidated or hesitant to be a champion of change within our system of laws and societal norms that make them subject to the values of the kingdom of God. Honestly, listen, the ability to change our laws, you know, from one legislative term to the next, from one under one president and then the next, even to the point of changing our constitution. Oh, and by the way, if you think changing the constitution is a bad idea, I encourage you to look at the amendments and tell me which ones you think were a bad idea. And and I'm going to give a little space here because maybe the 16th and the 18th, I'll give you those. My point is, don't look at the Constitution or the current laws of the land as something that should never be improved. That's part of the brilliance of our founding fathers. So Jesus sits at Jacob's well, waiting. He sits on the well. (laughs) He sits on the manipulation that gave Jacob the ability to even dig this well. And he sits on control and he sits on greed and puts it all in its proper place. And he sits on it because it's nothing for him to, to him. It's nothing to be revered. It's nothing to be celebrated. The legacy of Jacob is not to be repeated. Jesus is bringing another way. Let's go the way of Jesus. Oh, one more thing for white church people. Verse 26 says, Jesus reveals himself to this woman. He says, I'm the one you're looking for. I'm the one you're looking for. Next verse says this. At that moment, the disciples return and were stunned to see Jesus speaking with the Samaritan woman. The 12 Jewish disciples who've been raised to despise Samaritans and especially Samaritan women and especially Samaritan women who've been divorced five times. So they approach the well and they're stunned. Jesus is talking to an ethnicity that is less than us. And so I say this to white church people. To white church people who are stunned that I'm even talking about this today. Be stunned. Be offended. Be taken aback. I think that's part of it because God can use that. God can use the things that shock you to reveal what's inside you. Be surprised at the breadth and width and height and length of God's love. God is not surprised. I didn't say God God caused it or that this is all part of his plan. I'm just saying God is not surprised that simultaneously we are facing not only a global physical disease like we've never experienced in our lifetime, But on top of that, we're coming face to face with an internal disease, a spiritual, soul, emotional disease of racism and bigotry and bias. So let yourself be stunned. Be shocked at your own ability to not even acknowledge that what's happening is something the church should be concerned about. Be shocked that you're shocked that I'm preaching this sermon. I want to show you something I've never seen before in this passage. Look at what it says in verse 31 of John 4. It says, Then the disciples began to insist that Jesus eat some of the food they brought back from the village. They weren't going to say anything about the woman. Do you know what it says about the disciples? They were stunned. They probably agreed together. But no one would say a thing. No one said a thing because there's too much at risk. There's the possibility of your own people turning against you. The cost is too great. They didn't dare say anything about the fact that their champion, their long-awaited deliverer, the rabbi who claimed to be from God, 
was talking to an ethnicity that they categorically saw as less than human. They wouldn't even ask him about it. So even though the disciples were stunned, they would not speak. Why? Well, probably, I don't know, fear of looking dumb. You know what? I think we need some white church people who are willing to ask dumb questions. We need some white church people who will stand on behalf of those whose voices have not been heard, even at the risk of being criticized, listen, by their fellow white church people. Maybe even cut off by their fellow white church people. I'm doing it right now. I know how risky this is. I I will definitely get some email this week. There may even be some people who decide this isn't the church for them because that guy's got the audacity to try to manipulate the story of Jesus to fit his political agenda. But listen, that's not the deal at all. I'm done being shocked and then not saying anything. And those of you who know me best know I don't have an activist bone in my body, but I have dedicated my life to speaking the truth of Scripture and to calling anyone who will listen to come along with me as I follow Jesus. Let's follow him together, and together let's learn to take on his kingdom values. I'm going to end with this. It's been said in times like, uh, like these when we hear things like black lives matter, when people question and are d- disgusted with the conduct of some law enforcement officers, it's been very normal, listen, please, it's become very normal and predictable for white church people in this country to insist that all lives matter. Blue lives matter. With all the humility I can muster, you can say what you want about me, you can criticize me, I'm all right with that, I know the territory I'm in right now, but listen, we don't need to say those things anymore. We don't need to say that anymore. Do you realize our voices have been heard all along for the last 400 years on this continent? No one needs to remind anyone that all lives matter. That is not helpful. So my message to white church people today is I'm asking you to no longer participate in environments that are filled with and that are all about Power and greed and comparison and pride and ego and self-advancement in environments where those things are more more important than actual people. I'm challenging you to do as Jesus did and abruptly leave. That you abruptly leave that table in the break room where those jokes are being told. That you abruptly change the channel. That you abruptly leave any environment that propagates generalizations and stereotypes and latent racism. I'm asking that together we would believe that Jesus is over Jacob. I believe in Jesus over Jacob. Jacob is not my hero. Jacob is not my model. Jacob may have been the model of that first century Jewish culture. He may be revered in Judaism today, and his values may have found their way into the fabric of our society. You know, do whatever it takes to get what you want, to advance yourself, whatever you want. Just grab it, go for it, no matter what that cost may be to someone else. But I choose Jesus over Jacob. Because Jacob's ways are broken. All Jacob knows is to pretend. All Jacob knows is to put on skin and hair that's not even his. To manipulate and control and think about himself and what he wants. 
I'm almost done. The story goes on. The last point of application is that we would now listen to voices we may not normally listen to and ask questions, do our research outside of our own echo chamber and beyond our own biases. When the scene plays out, Jesus says this in verse 35, or the, the, John says this in verse 35, says, as the crowds emerge from the village, so the Samaritan woman went back to the village. She told everyone about Jesus. The whole village came out. Jesus says this, to his 12 uh, Jewish disciples who were raised to be racist. He says, the harvest is four months away, huh? Isn't that the saying you guys have? He says, look up, people are coming. Now is harvest time. And I want you to see this scene. Here are 12 Jewish men in the first village to ever be won by the message of Jesus' love and forgiveness was a Samaritan village. Listen, when comparison and envy and prejudice and ego and pride is the way that we go, we'll never be able to go where Jesus is leading us to go. And I'm going. I'm committed to the compassion of Jesus as far as it moves me. All right, I'm going to trust that what's been said is sufficient for now. I weigh more to understand from the ways of Jesus. I haven't figured this out. I'm just beginning to process this. So I thank you for processing this with me today. I love you. I love you, white church people. I know I've been hard on you today, uh, but I love you. Thanks for listening. Let's pray. God, I'm asking very specifically in this moment that in our times of solitude in the days ahead, in the lives of people in our church this week, that, that our times of solitude would be filled with listening listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I'm asking for our interactions with one another, that they would be characterized by listening. God, I believe it's in the listening that we will grow in grace and our knowledge and understanding of our Savior. Thank you, God, for the forgiveness that flows freely from the cross of Jesus. May we be instruments of grace through the days of this week. In Jesus' name.